The Guardian. The total number of voters for unity in the whole of southern Sudan is 16,129. That represents 0.43%. Those who voted for separation in southern Sudan were 3,697,467. And the percentage is, the percentage is 99.57%. Today is a political earthquake, and I believe is the day that the Lord has made for the people of Southern Sudan. I'm indeed very happy to see that at last we are free. Our freedom has come. On July the 9th, Southern Sudan will become the world's newest country, but it will also be one of the poorest, with some of the worst human development indicators in the world, and as relations with Khartoum in the north are increasingly tense, what does the future hold for the new state? In this week's Guardian Focus podcast, we'll look at the development challenges and opportunities facing South Sudan in its crucial first year. We'll ask what international donors, multilateral organisations and NGOs can do to help push forward progress. And we'll discuss what the Southern's independence means for development in the North and in neighbouring countries. First, I'm joined by Zan Rice, The Guardian's East Africa correspondent. Zan, you were in Juba for Southern Sudan's referendum on independence in January. What was it like? Yeah, it was it was a remarkable time, and the day itself was uh, yeah, it was pretty moving. Um, people were queuing up from the very early hours, sort of two, three in the morning. Old men, women with children, people really, really excited about about voting and really excited about what it all meant for them. And it's been a long time coming, this hasn't it? The country has been racked by civil war almost ever since the British left. Can you tell us a little bit about the history and what the peace agreement of 2005 aimed to achieve? Yeah, well, that's right. I mean, Sudan was got its independence in 1956 and war had already broken out the year before in the south, um, carried on until 1972. Um, there was a brief um, interlude of peace, but in 1983, war broke out again and only ended in 2005. So that's nearly, nearly 40 years of war. And every, I think it's fair to say virtually every single person in South Sudan um, has been affected by the war in some way or another over the generations. And the Comprehensive Peace Agreement, which was signed in 2005 at a ceremony here in Nairobi, and I was actually present at that, that provided for a, for a six-year interim period where the South had a, a large degree of autonomy. And at the end of that time, the southern uh, people of southern Sudan would then have the choice whether they wanted to stay united with the North as one country or whether they wanted to split. Um, and that's what we saw in January, where 99% of, of voters actually chose to split. Those decades of war and insecurity have left southern Sudan with weak basic services. Over 4 million people reportedly received food aid in 2010, and 75% of the population lacks access to the most basic health care. We spoke to Mabore Philip about his experiences of the local hospital. He's 25 and has lived in Juba all his life. If you go now to Juba Teaching Hospital, which is the main hospital in the whole of southern Sudan, you will not be able to get served. 
They don't provide any service. They don't treat you. They either prescribe that this is the drug you should get. Go and buy it on the streets. Okay, this is the disease you may have, but we are not sure about it. Go to Kenya. Go to Uganda. This is what they say. Sometimes you have nurses who don't attend to the patients. This is, this is the thing. You cannot think, you cannot say we have hospitals. And it is being proved by having all the officials here going outside. We heard there of a weak healthcare system and a chronic shortage of doctors and nurses. These are often cited as some of the top development challenges facing South Sudan. What's the situation like outside Jubazan? Well, services are, as, as the previous clip suggested, very, very basic. I mean, last year I went to a town called Bor, which is the capital of the largest state in South Sudan, and it's only about 100 miles from Juba. The journey took six hours, and that was because the road, only because the road had been improved. Um, previously, it would have taken a lot more. Um, there was no, no power, uh, no mains power there, no clean water. Um, so services are, are really, outside Juba, very, very, very basic. Zan, the list of development challenges is huge and the government has got a sort of window of opportunity ahead. It's got to start getting things moving in the right direction in the next couple of years, probably. You're headed to Juba for the independence celebrations on the 9th of July. What are you looking to, to find there? Well, I think, first of all, there'll be a tremendous sense of, sense of excitement because people have been waiting for this um, for so many years, but especially the last six years. But there's also going to be a lot of expectation. I mean, now that they are, they are a, a new country, they have their own governments, they're, they're in charge of their own destiny. Um, people are going to want to see things change, um, and change pretty fast. So the government's really going to have to get its act together, um, and people want to, see, want to see improvements in their lives, not just in Juba, but around the country. Personally, I have a lot of hopes that with independence, things will change. And uh, what I think should change is the system of education. You know, it is surprising that when you move in Juba town here, you can be able to find a four-story building standing. But besides it, there is a classroom that is struggling to stand. Most of them collapsing. Sometimes you see a child going to school. The child stays there the whole day. You come and ask, okay, my sister, my bro, what did you study? No teacher came. Do you see? There's a saying that a bad beginning makes a good ending. So I know with us beginning like this from, from nowhere almost, I know we shall go to somewhere. And you know, even to count a million, you must start from zero. Maybe by now we shall go to one. So we have a sense of the scale of the challenges facing South Sudan and also of the expectations that come with independence. I'm joined in the studio in London by Sara Patuliano, head of the Humanitarian Policy Group at the Overseas Development Institute, and Jonas Nialango, Sudan Country Representative for Tear Fund, an international relief and development charity that's been working in South Sudan since 1998. Also down the line from Juba, we have Jock Madut Jock, Undersecretary for Culture and Heritage in the Government of South Sudan. Jock Madut Jock, your government has a huge task. Where are you going to start? Yes, uh, you're quite right. We have uh, serious challenges as a new state. We have the legacy of 50 years of uh, conflict. We have a population that has lost uh, a lot of uh, property and a lot of lives and having to rebuild their lives from the scratch. We have a country that has only 40 miles of paved road. Uh, we have so many, so many challenges. Um, so when we, people talk about reconstruction, from my perspective, I think it is not reconstruction. It is just beginning construction because there's nothing to reconstruct. And so the question really, as you put it, is where, how do you prioritize in a place where everything is a priority? And uh, from the perspective of, of the government I serve in, 
it requires uh, communication with our people to tell our people that here is the country uh, emerging from war where expectations are sky high, where we have only $2 billion a year, which one do we tackle first? The government says we can tackle this by year one, we can tackle that by year two, so that one is able to manage these expectations. Jock, there's a lot of uh, help being promised by the international community. How can we make sure, how can you make sure, that the aid goes to where it's needed? Well, the aid uh, should, from the perspective of the government, foreign aid should only be addressing priorities identified by the government. So what we do, we sit down and we say, healthcare, education, infrastructure, electricity, and so forth and so on are our priorities. Here is how much money we have. Here is the deficit that we require the international community to assist us with. And once the money comes, it comes to fit into programs that are homegrown uh, identified priorities, not priorities identified by the donor countries or by the aid agencies as has been the practice in the past. So the, the way to make sure that this money goes straight to programs and to people intended, it is intended for is to have it become a part of a total plan rather than just haphazard response to the availability of money. Here's a comment from our talk point on our website. Sudan Sentinel says the first priority for donors is to focus on building the capacity of the South Sudanese government. What can donors do and what indeed can the government do about building up the structures of the, the government, the state? Well, the capacity, the, talking about capacity should take off from the point of view identifying uh, that which exists already and then uh, built on what you have. So when people talk about lack of capacity, I think the case is being overmade, uh, if you will. Uh, there are uh, basic uh, skills that are here in South Sudan. And if the international community is going to respond to the need of, of, of further skills, they should first focus on placing the skills that are already available in the right places. So that what capacity building that be, will be done will build on uh, structures that already exist. It is not reinventing the wheel. Many thanks, Jock. Back here in the studio in London, Sarah, you used to head the UN Development Programme's Sudan Peacebuilding Unit. Does security need to come before building schools? It surely needs to come at least at the same time as building school, if not before. And I would say it, different parts of the countries actually need to come first. In the peripheries, it definitely needs to come first. In Juba, we were just hearing you know, from uh, a young man in Juba, the desire to have to see good education, good health is obviously very hard because they see other developments taking place in Juba and they are frustrated by the fact that you know, there is no commensurate increase in the level and quality of education and health services. And this would be, you know, mostly uh, refugees that have come back from an urban experience of being abroad or, you know, being displaced in Khartoum, perhaps. But in the peripheries, where insecurity is still rampant, actually security is the priority. Um, I was in Iran last year doing some work, you know, in Lake State, and people were saying, what's the use of having a hospital in Iran if we can't get to the hospital because the roads are too unsafe? If we don't have greater security on the roads, we can't access it. Jonas, you're the country manager for Tear Fund. What do you think the priorities should be? I think the priorities um, with the problems in uh, Sudan being uh, multiple, 
and so on. Being a humanitarian, uh, coming from development and a humanitarian uh, faith-based organization, we see that the areas of social services shouldn't be left out. Like By health and education. Yeah, health and education, uh, water and sanitation, food security. So those areas should be also prioritized. Sarah, are there any parallels that the South Sudan can learn from? I think there are parallels from where South Sudan should not learn from, and that is the one of Eritrea. Um, that you know is the, pro- probably the closest. You know, is uh, a state that was strongly supported by the international community, which fought a similar liberation struggle where there was a lot of positive energy. And then, because of the challenges, and we've heard from Jock, you know, the enormous challenges that exist in developing, setting up, and governing a new state, uh, started to sort of close in and become more and more um, autocratic. And so that's definitely one not to learn from. And this, you know, the ability to recognize, embrace the challenge and look at how you can address them one by one without, without being taken, you know, being overwhelmed by the complexity of the situation. I was very interested by Jock's reference to very high expectations. I, is that part of that sort of mechanism that leads to political authoritarianism? That's, a, that's the highest challenge in many ways because so far people have uh, accepted many delays and um, a lot of the, the problems in the you know, delivery of uh, a functioning state because of the referendum and because of this ideal of secession because they wanted to get to an independent Sudan. After this, it will be much harder for you know a young and inexperienced government to continue to um, ask its citizens for the same level of patience. You know there is not much more patience, um, and, and and there is also a big difference between Juba and the rest of the country. They've seen very little compared to Juba in terms of changes since the uh, the signing of the peace agreement. Here's another comment from the talk point on our website. Harvard professor Calestus Juma argues that South Sudan urgently needs to find a new role for its army. Sarah, what's your comment on that? I agree. I think the army has been one of the the, the issues you know that's, that's remained outstanding in the implementation of uh, of the agreement. Um, Sudan doesn't have a credible police force. There is a role for you know people that have served in the Sudan army to be retrained as civil police. Are we talking about a lot of men? I mean, is the army imp- relatively large? It, it is large. And the problem is, that, you know, these are people that have not been reabsorbed in other sectors uh, or, you know, retrained to join civilian life or, you know, sort of um, been used to enforce the rule of law, which is so important in, in the country at the moment. I mean, some of them have been absorbed as, you know, wildlife rangers, but in reality, the, there hasn't really been a transition. It's just another name for being part of the SPLA still. And this is one of the critical issues that the government does need to address as soon as possible because unhappy army men bring a lot of insecurity. A lot of the insecurity we've seen in different states of Sudan are because you have an army that is not longer you know, fighting a war but maintains the same level of weapons and the same level of you know, predatory attitude towards the civilian population. So it's definitely an urgent area to address. Another issue that the government must face is that there has been a large influx of southerners returning home from the north and other parts of the world. This is placing a a strain on already overstretched resources. Jonas, what can people do to prepare for this? Yeah, again, that's why we have to prioritise the social services and so on, like uh, 
Tier Fund, we, are, we have positioned ourselves in these uh, areas of food security, water and sanitation and uh, health. In food security, actually, we are uh, training farmers in improved methods of farming and also giving them seeds and tools so that they can grow their own food. And secondly, on water and sanitation, helping them on construction of wells and uh, latrines, plus giving them the skills later on to maintain and manage those um, facilities. And in health, we are running uh, clinics in the rural areas, but also training the local staff working with the Minister of Health so that they can be able to, to again run when we are away. I just want to give an example of um, these trainings and the equipping we are giving to the communities. Um, one of the people we helped is Deng Deng. And this man we helped in agriculture, we helped also in construction training skills in that. And a lady called Anok came and she is a widow with five children. She just had some clothes and a saucepan, nothing more. But uh, Deng Deng was able to take this uh, widow and the children in his home, but help her build her own house and the toilets and, and so on, so that she is now uh, in her own house. That is the preparedness that needs to be done, so that when people come, they, there is some resource that they can uh, look up to. When it comes to building schools and hospitals and a new country even, where's the money coming from, Sarah? A lot of it does need to come from within the country. This is not a poor country. It's a country with a lot of resources for a relatively small population. And oil. And oil, absolutely. You know, a, a huge budget for such a small country. So its resources need to be better prioritized and accounted for within, you know, the state of Sa the New Republic of South Sudan. Um, and then, you know, there can be, of course, support from the international community. There has already been quite a lot of support, not very well provided and delivered for sure, um, but it is you know, a, a state that definitely attracts quite a lot of in international engagement, perhaps too much at times. Oil has been a curse in many countries. How can South Sudan ensure that that wealth in the oil actually reaches everybody in the country? It's a very difficult challenge because in the last four or five years, this hasn't happened. There's been a variety of reasons um, why this has not happened, but it doesn't bode well you know, for the, the future. And I think it, it really needs to be tackled as an issue for the government as a whole. They're aware of it. It's something that is discussed at the level of the cabinet. You know, it's something of which many politicians in South Sudan are aware. It's a huge resource and people are aware of that resource and don't see the benefits of the resource. So it's a hugely divisive issue within the country. Um, it just needs some really courageous political action to make sure that it's properly used. With all this focus on South Sudan, Sarah, what about the neighbours? Well, the most important neighbour is clearly the north um, and how the relation with the north will be managed. Um, you know, right now, in this next week or so, before um, the independence is, uh, uh, is declared and then, you know, further forward. I mean, I see this as just a step 
in a much longer transition. It's, of course, a major step, but the transition doesn't end. There is so much still to be worked out. There is a border that will continue to be shared. There are so many tensions. Of course, you know, we, we have the fighting in South Kordofan that is still ongoing, despite a framework agreement being signed yesterday. Uh, we have, you know, tensions in ABA. These relations need to be managed in a way that is, uh, you know, a win-win situation for both the North and the South. And, and Jonas, um, your country and regional representative for Tier Fund, so you have an interest in Uganda, which has been a very troubled neighbour in the north of Uganda with South Sudan, uh, and you also run programmes in the north. What are your concerns about the impact on the neighbours of South Sudan? Yeah, my, my, my concerns are that, uh, like uh, South Sudan really has been connected a lot with uh, uh, Uganda and the Kenya, certainly even after the separation. They are still connected with the, the North. And therefore, our encouragement and our advice is that they'll be open to share. Uh, they're already sharing, but to continue and even increase sharing on development practices that have been useful and helpful to them. Actually, we're in a workshop whereby uh, a certain university was talking about South-to-South -south support, basically saying support should come from the area not like from abroad and uh, this is like on universities the universities in kenya now are able to run on themselves without depending on support from outside from the fees and so on the way they structured uh, the causes and we already invited the Daystar university to come and help one of our theological college to give them advice on how they can uh, support themselves because they've been held waiting for uh, getting help, but it's not coming now. This is a big dislocation for the North. They're losing a lot of revenues. It's going to be quite a shock. Uh, uh, what kind of programs could be put in place? What kind of support can be given to the North, which after all itself is a poor country? Well, really for me, maybe I'll let my colleagues say, though I wanted to comment on where the money will come from to building schools and so on, if that will be allowed. Um, working with our uh, partner organisations, actually... Uh, we are trying to help change the mindset of the people in the rural areas. They've been IDPs in many places, always receiving aid. IDP, you mean internally uh, inter displaced? Internally displaced peoples. And uh, what we are telling them that actually Sudan, South Sudan is endowed with a lot of resources. And the biggest of them is actually the people themselves. They are strong, they have energy and so on. And so we try to encourage it to change the mindset and so on. I want to give the example of Goja. Goja community, after we went and uh, challenged the communities, what they can do with their own local resources and so on, they prioritized uh, education, school, uh, sanitation, clinic, and uh, agriculture. Uh, and they actually developed a plan of 20 years. It is true. And uh, six years down the road now, they are actually almost ahead of themselves. They have been able to build the school from their own resources. They have built the church. They, have, they are working on the clinic. And actually on agriculture, they have formed groups and they are doing larger uh, farming, which even the government, uh, a certain cooperative which helps farmers, they are helping now, uh, this community to actually use tractors. That's why now they are uh, cultivating a lot. So it has to come from external but actually they should look at their own resources as well. 
Well, that's great to end on a positive note for this week's Guardian Focus podcast. For more ongoing coverage of South Sudan and other development issues, visit guardian.co.uk forward slash global development. My thanks to Sara Petuliano, Jonas Nilango and Jock Madut Jock. I'm Madeline Bunting. The producer was Vivian Perry and the researcher was Claire Provost. For more great downloads, go to guardian.co.uk forward slash audio.